Welcome to the Designer Up podcast, helping you level up your product design skills and become a more mindful designer. I'm your host, Elizabeth Alley, and this is episode five, Building the Entrepreneur with Andrew Hutton. I'm very excited to have Andrew Hutton on the show with me today. Andrew was a former adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design in New York. He was a principal design strategist at Accenture and the head of business design at Human Ventures. He is currently the founder and CEO of Day One, which is a cohort-based program for entrepreneurs and idea stage startups. What I really resonate with about uh, Day One is that it's not just focused on helping entrepreneurs um, that have their sights set on VC funding. It's really about starting businesses and creating livelihoods and about getting into the right mindsets that are really tantamount to success and longevity as a business owner or running a business. And those are some of the things that I'm really eager and excited to dive into with you today, Andrew. So thank you for being my guest. Elizabeth, thank you for having me. Um, that was very well said. My work is done. No, I'm really excited to yeah, dive into yeah. that and 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 yeah, talk about all things where design meets business meets startups. It's been a wild ride. Excited to to dig in. Oh, that's excellent. So my first question is a very serious one. How does it feel to say the word entrepreneur that many times a day? <laughs> uh, it, what's crazy is that I'm very good at typing it. I know where the EU is. I, I, I <laughs> and all my keyboards know how to present it. Um, it's a mouthful, entrepreneurial. Um, I don't know. It stops meaning what it, it stops, starts just sounding like like noise. Um, yeah. No, it's 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 fun <laughs> to be able to just like live a day job where entrepreneurs and founders and every permutation thereof are the people I get to rub shoulders with and serve. And, and, you know, we get, you know, we're get past being like customers and they're just, you know, people that I'm working with and it's really a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, entrepreneur, it's an interesting word. Um, the etymology comes from an old French word, um, entreprendre, meaning to begin something or to undertake Right. And then it was adopted hmm. in the English language and defined as one who organizes, manages and assumes the risk of a business or enterprise. And then it also is related to the, the Sanskrit word um, entrepreneur, which means self-motivation. So I think that's really interesting and really telling of what an entrepreneur is. So what does that kind of mean to you and how did you find yourself as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I love that. I love all three of those. And really, I love the two non-English translations, right? The undertaking um, is exactly right. And I, and I think there's that's much more pure and pure is maybe too strong of a word, but it's it's much more the essence of what I think entrepreneurship really has always been and what it's really becoming so much more today. I think, you know, we live on like micro timescales, um, but what's been happening in you know the world in 2020 now in 2021 um but also in the last five to ten years the you know rise of entrepreneurship the makers the creators the passion economies you know people just undertaking new things whether it's side hustles or whatever they might be um passion projects these are all becoming much 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 more legitimate entrepreneurial endeavors right so in many ways the word founder let's like put that to the side and yeah, I, I've been working with entrepreneurs for, for a few years now. Um, you know, the transition for me was very much, you know, from a consultant coming from design school into consulting where, um, you know, I was always doing both business consulting, management consulting, as well as design and innovation work. And it started to, you know, through that career journey, dawn on me that entrepreneurs 
we're always a little bit over there, right? Because when you're a consultant, especially when I, where I was inside of a big agency, big consultancy, um, doesn't quite feel entrepreneurial, even though we're being innovative, even though we're creating new things. Um, but entrepreneurs are always the ones doing the most down to earth at the bottom. Like it's pure is kind of the right word for it, right? There's there's no other, you know, things to get in the way. You don't have to like please the the bosses or like play to the stakeholders. You're just like, I'm making a thing. And if I'm selling it, I'm, I'm in the game, right? right? And if I'm not, I'm going to make a new thing. And right, right. Oh, it was so aspirational to be like, entrepreneurs are the real innovators, right? Entrepreneurs are, and that's not to say anything to the, to the, to the designers out there who are, you know, making and creating, but um, that was at least sort of a dawning on me. And I can maybe go into that sort of like intellectual plus career journey of, of seeing entrepreneurship as this kind of force, this power where innovation was being made and happening on the ground. And, and yeah, I love it in its most micro sense, right? Yeah. I think entrepreneurship at the smallest form is the most like fun and the most like exciting. Yeah. So how did you end up in like the design world and teaching at Parsons? Like where did you really kind of start getting into this innovation space? Yeah. I'll even take it all the way back. So Good. Out of undergrad, um, out of undergrad, I got a economics and political science degree. I was going to go to law school. I was all set. I had taken the LSAT twice. I was accepted scholarships. Uh, I got very lucky that I had interned as well at a law firm because, you know, I just go all in. And it was the internship where I saw the sausage get made that turned me off. And I had enough time to go through this whole cycle of like, like a hype cycle of like, I must be a lawyer to, man, I can't. This is obviously not it. I don't know what the answer is, but it's not lawyering. Um, and so if you've gone through your own quarter life crisis, I'm with you. It happens. Um, sometimes it's for the best. Most of the time it's for the best. So um, went through this very quick intellectual journey. Um, I felt very proud of myself for making a big career decision at 22. In hindsight, I was, you know, I don't know, just putting my finger in the air. I happened to take a stint. This is, again, like I won't, de- we won't spend much time at all deviating into this little story, but I spent six months building a business in Uganda. It was a farm. It was an agricultural business. I just basically went off the map with a friend to go build this business. It was a social business. And when I came back, I'm literally, that's how fast I'm going to talk about my pig farming in Uganda. But when I came (laughs) back, I was like, I have to have a career. Who makes stuff? Who makes stuff? And I answered designers. Designers make stuff. So I, you know, born and raised in Connecticut. So I was like, I'm going to go to New York. So I'm either going to go to school in Pratt. I'm either going to go go find the, the school that will take me out of Pratt, SBA or Parsons. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go find the design program that's closest to what I am, which is a business guy. Yeah. And it just happened to be the Parsons strategic design program was probably the best fit for me, but there was a great program at SBA around social entrepreneurship. Um, I'm sure there's other programs now at um, SBA and Pratt and, you know, really all the other schools, um, have added business and design from what, whichever side they came from. Yeah. So I, I lucked into it and Parsons was an amazing experience, really introduced me to design thinking, right? That was the whole program. So I really don't, I mean, designer is too much is a stretch for a title because design thinking, strategic design, I mean, it's really problem solving. And so me moving into consulting was, very natural because yeah. that's kind of what I was leading myself towards what I was, what I'm probably really was meant to do. And I'm good at, um, but being able to pull on these design, you know, what design thinking is these design capabilities, these design mindsets of living through ambiguity, thinking in divergent forms, um, creatively playing with many things before making decisions. And um, yeah, it was an amazing 
journey within a big consulting firm, Accenture, to kind of find my own practice of where design, design thinking met with, you know, one big business serving many other big businesses. And, and yeah, there's so much to be said about that because my time at Accenture overlapped with a time when Accenture was buying all these design firms. They acquired Fjord in my, when I was there. Um, at the end of my time, they acquired a bunch of smaller firms, later bigger firms like Droga5. And it was very much um, part of a evolution towards, yeah, we're going to make design thinking part of our like consulting strategy. Right. And, um, and I felt like I lived through it. So yeah, it was, uh, I mean, that takes me to my days at Human Ventures and in, in consulting, um, at consulting and startups and, um, and that big switch again from, okay, if designers make things, innovators or rather entrepreneurs are like, launching things. I don't know. It's like the next level. Right. And, uh, and there was sort of like a push to get out there. Yeah. So how did you end up as a professor over at Parsons? Um, part of, I mean, the very simple story is I got good enough grades in a class that they needed professors in after I graduated, um, graduating, you know, from a grad degree in this not again, new is the wrong word, but in this kind of burgeoning, uh, field of strategic design, design thinking. Um, I was as well suited as anybody to come back and and teach it. I was. I went back and taught sort of the entry level class, even in my master's program, and uh, and yeah, it was uh, just an opportunity I couldn't say no to, um, which was to put on my teaching hat again. Something that I think I, again, I was fortuitous took the opportunity and have developed sort of that part of me and those skills because and it's certainly played out in my through the rest of my career i love imparting knowledge and just asking that amazing question that just gets somebody thinking in a new way or just showing a something you know a, a data some piece of da- some piece of something that's inspirational um and just kind of pushing people forward giving them assignments that push them out of their comfort zone so mm-hmm. Um, very fortuitous, but found, you know, a groove there, loved teaching, um, basically always did that while I was at Accenture. I was, was not going to give up that teaching post because I needed to keep my foot in the design world and just have some form of creativity while I was, you know, on sometimes pretty boring projects. <laughs> right. So what year was that around that you were kind of teaching design thinking? That was graduated in 2014. So it's about 2014 through 2017. Um, okay. Teaching design thinking, working at Accenture, yeah, doing so all sorts of different that, things. That was really early days for design thinking, especially like applied to um, digital product design and the stuff that we're doing now. What kind of responses were you getting from students when you were teaching this kind of stuff? Like what was that experience of teaching this stuff like? Because it was it's kind of abstract and it's kind of weird. And like empathy is something that's talked about so much now. It's it's a really different conversation around it now. But I, I would think that it was really different in those early days of, of talking. Yeah. About it. So the experience we had at Parsons was, so Parsons is a design school teaching design thinking, which I think is very different than, you know, Stanford teaching design thinking, which is maybe Stanford's like business school perhaps, right? Or all the programs that came out, like when Toronto was doing it with um, um, Roger Martin or, you know, the way Kellogg has a, you know, a program now. Um, Being a design school, people kind of came in knowing that, like I actually taught a lot of designers. I taught a lot of fashion designers and graphic artists, people who were like good at their hands and needed to learn the other side of things, the business side. 
And so, and so the idea of applying empathy towards a problem that wasn't like solved with your hand, it was facilitated with these design mindsets and practices, but it was a problem of, you know, apply it to urban design or apply it to business design or apply it to, yeah, just entrepreneurship. And I mean, that was really where we had a lot of the rub, right? Where people were mostly, were, were more uncomfortable than not was applying was, was, yeah, was just getting into the business world, frankly, right? And, and one of the things that we, the Parsons program did really well was basically say, we're gonna bite off these like big challenges, mm-hmm. you know, and half the students would bite off these like social challenges, which is sort of the first thing that most people think of when they wanna go like change the world with, you know, wicked problems, let's go solve climate change or poverty or something. Um, but also just, you know, you know, we'd bring in, organizations that would bring their business challenges and um and they were very like holistic right okay we're going to try to drive a business outcome we're going to try to change this massive system now how do we go about it right how do we get how do we do the you know the kind of standard steps let's do research let's do sense making Mm -hmm. let's do some prototyping let's figure out where we're going right right um but yeah when it was applied to like we just had all these constraints of like so that sounds really great and maybe that could have been made great in design school but when you're, when the real world of like a business proposition is in play, it, um, you start to realize like, oh, that's actually a bad idea, right? And you just yeah. have all these different constraints. I guess maybe that's one way to think about it, right? So designers, design thinking is all about creativity within constraints. Yeah. Design thinking also just says our constraints involve technology, they involve business viability, mm-hmm. right? They involve users, desirability, right? Um, yeah, so I was really teaching those other two two legs of the stool that were that were most uncomfortable and interesting for folks. That's that's so interesting. The, our newsletter last week was titled "What You Want Is Control, What You Need Is Constraint," because mm. that's kind of something that a lot of new designers coming into our program have um, struggled with. They they often think of problem solving really from a visual perspective and kind of the elements that they're putting on the page and layouts and visual hierarchy and color and those types of problems, visual problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But and they get into a space where they're often like presented with this blank canvas and they're just like, I don't know what to do. There's endless possibilities. I could put any color, any button style, any layout on this page. Um, and I really want control over what the users are going to do with this and how they're going to look at it and where the sight lines are going to be. And then they forget, or they don't know yet that they need to start defining their constraints, right? They're not going to have control over what the users, uh, think of their apps or their ideas or, you know, what they do with them even until they start going through these processes and, you know, Mm -hmm. um, understanding mental models and, you know, getting in the mindset of, you know, going through these iterative processes. And then of course the business acumen that you have to have to be able to know what are the business constraints and then the technological acumen of what can the tech support just because you can make this amazing website with all of these, you know, parallax effects and the coolest fonts in the world. If it can't load on someone's browser, you know, nope. you're going to nope. have a big problem. So defining those constraints more than feeling like you have control over this whole design thinking process is difficult for them. Yes. And what I was thinking along that whole train of thought was that wh- why I think it's so important to bring entrepreneurship as a concept, as a discipline into this dialogue is that 
entrepreneurship, one way to define entrepreneurship is you basically, so in the rest of the world, whether it's design or the job you might've had in a big business or a consultant, you control the inputs, you control where things go on a page and that's what you're judged on. You're judged on how beautiful that page looks or if you did all your you know, reports right or if your financial model is perfect and you let the business take care of the outputs. You know, you've been given a job and you've nailed it. That's like the world, that's most people's world. Entrepreneurship flips the script. Yes, you control the inputs, but you are only judged on the outcomes. You're only judged on if it does the job it needs to do. And it has to load fast. It has to be pleasing to the customer. It has to make a buck. You have to have someone buy it. And you don't get to choose what your constraints are. The market puts that on you. So the markets, the customer's expectations, the competition, whether your thing is cheap or expensive is not your decision, right? And so in some ways it's freeing because you actually don't get to choose where your constraints are, but you better go find them. You better understand Mm -hmm. what people are bringing to the table when they judge your thing. And it's only in the eye of the beholder, right? Success, beauty, whatever. And it's, it's, it's a real mental shift because obviously you control the inputs. You're the entrepreneur, you're the designer. You get to decide if that button is blue or red or whatever, but it kind of doesn't matter what you think. It matters about the outcomes. And so when you get that mindset, you get, you obviously keep all your tools, but the way you put them together changes. You have to go find those constraints. You have to go take your thing and get it into market. You have to collide, you have to ship and, and then you have to iterate, right? Because and you probably shouldn't even think that much about the first thing you do because it's probably wrong. And regardless right. of, and it literally doesn't matter what you think. So this is like the Steve Blank school of thought. And it's really true. There's no information worth listening to inside of the building. And that means your own opinion, right? Yeah. So just get something built and ship it. Absolutely. And and this is something that I've learned. I did not quite, you know, you learn get out of the building in design school at Parsons, wherever, because you, you learn research, you learn empathy, but you don't learn the necessity of, your own opinions don't matter. I mean, you do, because you learn empathy. You learn like, hey, listen to that person, treat their their experiences you know, valid. Again, don't they, you do learn not to bring your bias, right. but not in the way that like, but what you are taught is to listen, understand what the user is telling you and doing, read between the lines, you know, don't, t- don't do what they want. Don't, don't build just what they want, build what they need. So you're taught that, Steve Jobs kind of taught us that. But then they're also taught sort of in the Steve Jobs manner of like, kick people out of the room and go build a beautiful thing, right? And I think most entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs is an exception, shouldn't really abide by that. They should do all the listening and then just get the thing built and put it out there. Anyway, I'm going on here, but it's, uh, yeah, it's very much a switch in the mentality from most jobs and most kind of design processes to go be an entrepreneur and say, I'm just going to get it out there and see what happens. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's that, um, especially when you're designing new products, there's always this tendency to um, focus on features rather mm-hmm. than outcomes, right? Um, it's just kind of like, what are we building? What's the task flow? What is this going to do? And how, how is it going to result in that task in the end being completed? But there's so much more to it because there's so many different ways to go about a feature or or whatever it is, an MVP, and arrive at an outcome even if it doesn't have a great feature or, you know, even if it's not the perfect uh, ideal vision of the product for you yet. So I think yep. that's so important as a North star, when you're just starting your products, when you're making your prototypes, your MVPs, can you have something that's so small that still results in some sort of a meaningful outcome, 
even mm-hmm. if it doesn't have all the features yet, even if it doesn't have all the tech yet or whatever it is. So, yeah. No, I mean, this point is like, we should just talk about this all night because it's the most important thing. It's the hardest thing. Um, it's all, you know, we, or we could stop here and just say like, just go do this. Right. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's easy enough to talk about it. It's extremely hard to do in practice because you do want to perfect your thing or at least take it a little bit further. You yeah. will be scared to ship your thing, but you know, you know, again, the adage of like, if you're not embarrassed by the, the first thing you ship or the thing you ship, you're waiting too long. It's super true. <laughs> it's very, very true. And sometimes you won't know why you're embarrassed, but this is what I tell folks who come through day one, um, entrepreneurs who don't want to pitch their ideas. I'm like, the more embarrassed you are, the least polished your ideas is literally indicative of the growth you're about to have. Like you are the one who's getting the most out of day one, right? The person who pitches a perfectly polished thing, why are they here? (laughs) Just go do it. Right. But to the extent that you are uncomfortable and don't like what you pitched and somebody tells you how to make it better, that's in infinitely valuable. Like that's the stuff. And so again, nothing is one inside. And that's why there's this whole movement to build in public. That's why there's this, you know, not related, but uh, very related, but like the whole creator economy, just people putting their own stuff out there and, you know, micro entrepreneurship, side projects, building public, like these are all manifestations of people who have now the tools and the abilities to make stuff, just not doing it for their companies, for the perfect thing, but just like, I don't know, being entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, I want to dive into a lot more of that a little later on, but uh, tell me a little bit more about day one. Like who ideally is it for? You talked yeah. about, you know, like if you're coming into this and you've got it sorted out and you're confident about your pitch and then you're not maybe going to get as much out of it. So who ideally is coming into the program? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh so, so day one is, you know, there's two core premises. So day one is built for early stage entrepreneurs, right? Meaning that idea of entrepreneur, the just get it started, right? Just, just launch something, the earliest stages, right? When it's forming it as an idea, when even you as an entrepreneur might not call yourself an entrepreneur, you haven't even said it out loud yet, right? But you're exploring, am I an entrepreneur? What is the thing? What is the problem that I'm solving? All the way down to, I have the thing, I'm building it. Um, I'm launching the thing, I'm selling it, but I'm working through the problems. So we define early stage as anything pre- product market fit, which again is, is an extremely nebulous line in the sands. You know it when you feel it, when, when you've got something and it's working. Um, but there's plenty of folks in day one who have raised money, who are, you know, they've passed that milestone, but they still haven't nailed it, right? They, plenty of folks who have products out there in market making thousands of dollars a month iterating, but they still haven't nailed it, right? Mm-hmm. All the way back to people who are exploring. So yeah. that early stage, and the reason why you can actually have a lot of diversity in that stage well, it looks diverse. Like I just said, there's all these different um, use cases, perhaps, right? Different different people who are coming into day one, but they actually have the same problems, right? They actually need to do the very similar steps yeah. and have the same coaching and guidance, the same camaraderie and collaboration, um, the same support, shoulders to cry on, right? It's, right. you know, the same, yeah. So, so you actually have a lot more in common to anybody in this early stage than anyone one step afterwards. If yeah. you take half, if you take the microest step afterwards, life looks very different and you need a different thing. But if you're here, um, so it's all about the early stage and and it's uh, 
I mean, that's kind of the main thing, right? It's all about the early stage. It's, it's also for folks who really want to level up, right? So growth-minded people, people who have, um, again, kind of like me, wanted to be entrepreneurial and sort of maybe inched their career along and are looking to take that jump. Um, you can definitely keep your day job and join day one and work either on side projects or even work on, on kind of uh, academic projects. Like you want to try out entrepreneurship, right? But you want to keep your day job. You want to see it. Yeah. That's very much a fit, right? But it's growth minded people who know that learning in the 21st century and learning entrepreneurship is, is really not done anywhere. I'm not gonna say anywhere else. Cause I'm not that much of a, you know, like there's places to like be entrepreneurial, like YC is an okay thing. I've heard about them. They're good. Right. right. right? Um, but teaching entrepreneurship is, is a, is a unique animal, right? It's yeah. highly, it has to be learning by doing, it has to be learning through association. Um, and I do think it's sort of my pedigree as a professor into a consultant, into what I did at human ventures, which was a player and a coach that sort of the sum of all those pieces is what day one is, right? It's a little bit of teaching. It's a little bit of consulting. It's a little bit of player, a little bit of coach, and it's unique, frankly. Um, um, I've uh, lived in this ecosystem, not too, too long, but long enough to kind of know we're just picking and choosing some of the best of all the things. Mm -hmm. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention that defines, that really differentiates day one in terms of where we sit in the world is we're not a venture capital firm at all, right? So we're entrepreneurially focused we're innovation focused, we're here to, you know, launch a million new entrepreneurs, help people get into the game and accelerate them. All the nouns and verbs that you see spread around venture capital, but we're not a venture capitalist. We don't have a funds, we're not investors. We are connected to tons of investors. We help you find those ones after you kind of, as you go through day one and you're launching it. But because of that, we're here to serve you and we have a fee. So we're like school in that sense, back to a different model. Yeah. I'd say up until now-ish, right, the keys of the of the innovation entrepreneurial world were held by investors, and they would only give out the means of production, the guidance and support, if you were investable. Right. And investable was a very, 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 very narrow definition, mm -hmm. right? And the creator economy is not generally investable because you're building small things, you're building passion projects the first time founder is often not that investable because you're about, you're going to make all the mistakes, promise you, right? That's most investors basically look at first time founders and say, let's let them make the mistakes once they'll probably come back and then we'll invest in them. Right. right, right. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of, we're trying to unbundle venture capital as well. Right. And so, and so we're friends with venture capitalists, but we're also unbundling them and trying to create a whole new launch pad stepping stone for entrepreneurs to then get somewhere and then decide. Do I need venture? Do I bootstrap? Do I do something else? That's awesome. So designer app is bootstrapped and, um, you know, wondering what kinds of ratios are you sort of seeing of people that are more focused on going down that path of VC versus bootstrapping versus, you know, just. Yeah. Honestly, I was just talking to someone today who came, you know, we used to work together at human ventures. She's from the venture world. Um, she's building a really cool product tech, consumer tech, consumer software products mm -hmm. that could easily become a venture backed business and asked her, do you want to go down this route? And she had the right answer. She's it, it's literally, I don't know. Right. And so the way I'm going to answer your question is that yes, there, I could probably tell you a little bit of a ratio, but there's actually a phase and it's close to the day one phase where you really don't have to and shouldn't choose. Right now, some people will choose and they'll be like, I'm going to get money because I can get it and they're going to go. Right. Yeah always going to be that. But the, but the idea of you being an entrepreneur and being like, well, 
I'm, you know, I don't have a ton of money, so I can't fund myself. I'm not, you know, from that background or have that, you know, privilege or luxury. So I have to do venture, right? That is no longer the only way. So it's, so it's definitely not a bifurcation that happens at the beginning. What we're trying to do is it's push the decision way down the road and it's better for everybody because the decision to bootstrap is a basically a decision to pick your growth trajectory, pick who you want to work with. And um, yeah, pick basically you don't, people don't realize it sounds sexy to build a big business. It will change your life in various crazy ways, right? Yeah. People don't, and if you're at, if you actually have that decision in front of you, you really should think about it. Do you really want to do that? Um, most folks would rather go build a five to $10 million business and go live on a beach. That's yeah. me, right? Let's go do that. Um, <laughs> that sounds really nice. And the, um, yeah. And so I think we are creating, and I think people are, it's not even we're creating, we're playing and people are recognizing there's a new phase. And, and you, you see this all the time. Actually, you start to, this is the thing, you can you see people doing this. So it's not that we're creating it. It's that yeah. more people have done it and blaze a trail and it's beginning to happen. So even just today, whatever today is, January 27th, Calendly, everyone uses Calendly or knows of it, raised money, triple unicorn, $3 billion valuation. They're like a decade old company and they've only raised money one other time. They're essentially bootstrapped, yeah. right? And on their way to massive growth, right? Mm-hmm. So there's... Um, we, we, in our first cohort at day one, we had the founder of Bubble, which is a no-code platform, come speak to us. They also were bootstrapped for seven years before they raised money. So yeah, it's it's very much becoming a different equation of like A or B and very much a, okay, we're just going to be this. And then we're going to decide on where we take our capital from and what our growth trajectory should become. And I'm here for it. That's really cool. Yeah, and I love Tope from Calendly. We did a uh, hot spotlight on him on our blog, and his story is absolutely incredible too. It's amazing. So, um, you know, and talking about like this learning by doing, learning by building, I think that's also so important because going through this whole process, doing it, it makes you really learn whether or not you're cut out for this um, because it's a whole thing, <laughs> it's a whole lifestyle. And it is stress in a, in a whole other way. It really um, is. You know, and I'd love to ask you a little bit about that too. What, what's your personal experience of like starting this up? How is it yeah. for you? Because you're kind of like, it's a meta thing. You're like an entrepreneur, becoming an entrepreneur, teaching entrepreneurs about entrepreneurship. It's very Yeah. I've lived at all the layers. It's super true. And yeah, even where I was at Human Ventures, you know, player coach, right? I was as close as you could be to an entrepreneur. I had a paycheck. I had, you know, I, I was going to move on to the next project after we shipped one of these businesses. And I said, sayonara to the entrepreneur and they got to go live that life. So no, I definitely never lived the, the emotional and the, 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 the pieces of what happens when you're in that messy middle. Um, like after that first honeymoon phase, like, man, before it's working in after you've started and maybe you've like kind of set sail. Uh, yeah, it's been a ride. It's been a real ride. Um, especially just in this year, you know, it's, I would say there's a little, I'm not going to try to call it a silver lining that I've basically been working on, on a remote business during a pandemic, which required nothing else of me because I did nothing else but build a business for the last eight months. Um, which I won't say is like a healthy or positive thing, but, um, but it was just, it's just the reality. And so, 
And so, yeah, very, here, here's, it's, yeah, it's a super up and down, right? The, one, some of the things I've learned or one thing that I know is super true that I advise folks to is when you're building a business, when you're setting out to build a business, the best place you can get to is something I might call like a sustainable path. Sustainable from primary, first and foremost, a financial standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Many ways to get there, whether it's whether it's because you've saved, whether it's because you have a spouse, whether it's because you can consult on the side or you can build a business as a side hustle to a day job. Putting yourself on like a ticking time bomb that is like a short runway is just a recipe for failure. You're gonna both lose your money and you're gonna lose your business. It's just not, it's almost certainly not gonna work, right? And so having some almost infinite runway that says, I could just do this, right? For, again, there's so many caveats. It, it's never infinite, obviously, but um, but it's also not just financial. It's like mental, right? It's it's well-being, right? So that if you are working a job and trying to build and you're not sleeping, that's not sustainable, right? And so it's it feels like threading a needle, but the, the thing that's changed in the last five to 10 years that's made solving that equation a lot more doable is the fact that it's, it's these things like no-code tools and these platforms that you can reach your customers. You don't have to have this massive team. You don't have to have this massive lift to go build a product, put it out there and see if somebody wants it, right? The thing that usually requires that like jump and that all in and that even that capital raise is it used to be just like this big chunk of time, energy and effort and money to go even get started. And now it's just like minuscule. It's just so much easier and you can spread it out over time. So yes, you might be building a little slower. You might not be, you know, all in and living that founder life, but it's, it's much more sustainable. So I think that's just an amazing place to try to get to. Right. And, and a lot of folks in day one are early enough that we can talk about that. Um, Plenty of folks have, have jumped or, you know, there's folks who have raised money. There's plenty of folks in the middle. It's never a perfect equation, but yeah. I mean, I sell that to say like, here's how you, it, cause it's super hard. So I've had a version of that, right. I've managed to maintain some sanity and, you know, my wife works and, um, you know, we've made it work and that's like a blessing in every single way. Right. Yeah. But it is tough. It is its own thing. And that's not, I'm not even telling you the ups and the downs of like when a good day happens and a bad day happens. Right. It's just like, how do you even have like a baseline so that you can like absorb those shocks, right. Without feeling like a bad day is literally going to send you into bankruptcy and stuff. So I don't know. It's that's a meta thought, um, just about preparing for it ahead of time, if, if, if at all possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's a great tweet that I came across on your uh, Twitter from one of your cohort members, Lisa Cooley, and she said about day one, they've shown us how to optimize your dream and not sacrifice your energy, time, or happiness, which no one talks about. Jeez. And I was really moved by that. I was excited by it um, because it's so important in what I do in our program. We teach mindful design and interaction practices. It's sort of a way to, you know, as a grounding element and a way to set your mind, you know, to help you focus and kind of cultivate empathy and kind of see the big picture more holistically of all those different experience levels that you're going to eventually be touching with your designs um, and everything that you're going to be doing if you do take this on to building it into a product that you take to market. And, you know, it's kind of also about 
tuning that inwards to how are we caring for ourselves, you know, it goes kind of against that hustle harder mentality of Silicon Valley of where you've got people going through YC on these extremely tight headlines, going through incubators and accelerators, and then coming out with an idea that they've really not tested very much and then pivoting to something else right away. And it's just, you know, how do you kind of encourage your cohorts to find that balance to sort of pursue these things yeah. without sacrificing their energy and their, their mental health, their self-care, all of that? Yeah. I'd say that one of the first things that I think the main, the main thing that we're, the main thing, the main thing that we, that we try to do is that we try to deliver everything and create an environment where people are connecting. Cause so many of the like remedies for these ways that you're, you know, falling through the cracks or, you know, you're losing your energy. It's just when you're, when you're just struggling alone. Right. And you don't have people to share the burdens. You don't have people to commiserate with. Um, and so and entrepreneurship is lonely. And that was before the pandemic. Right. Um, especially for folks who aren't just like Uber networked and can just like hang out in startup bars or whatever. Right. Like the people who are kind of breaking in, trying, who don't know a ton of people whose networks are from their professional careers, wherever they're coming from, ultra lonely, ultra lonely. And so the first thing that we do to actually solve that is it's community, right? We're in, you know, that word is overused. um, But in this day and age of, you know, there's a reason why everyone's striving for it's because we got separated. And, you know, we put a ton of intentionality in in creating real community for um, allowing members to, allowing day one fellows to build relationships and get to know each other and collaborate together and create a culture where you don't might not know each other very well, but you kind of know what you're, you're already in a community because you're already here together. So that's really the first thing and, and really just helping people sustain that, right? That covers over a lot of the challenges of, you know, the irreducible issues and challenges and stresses of building a business is having people around you. Yeah. And I mean, everyone needs therapy. Everyone should have a coach, right? Amen to that. Put therapy off to the side. Coaching is super exclusive, right? There are founder coaches out there. I promise you. I know what they cost. They're like 500 bucks an hour, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's ultra exclusive. And at the very bottom of it all, day one is just a value play. Day one is the easiest, cheapest way <laughs> for an entrepreneur to get not just friends, but collaborators and mentors and coaches on a way that's like hyper useful, but also just there, right? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, yeah, and and just basically prioritizing those types of interactions and connections and and existences is is kind of the first thing, right? Yeah. So so we try to just like say that's how we do it. Um, and the second is like that that idea of like be sustainable, right? We're basically not telling anybody like go get funding in the next two months. Yeah. We're basically telling people figure out how you can build forever in this current state, <laughs> right? We're basically setting the like golden like outcome as a sustainable, healthy way. And um, as like a foundation and then let people deviate from there because people will want to go harder. They will want to take risks and that's great, right? Go for it. Um, And, uh, and that's what this is all about. So, so yeah, I mean, it's setting up foundations like that, setting up communities. And I mean, we have a workshop tomorrow um, on mental health, right. And, And the mindset of like having, you know, prioritizing, your health and your wellness as you build. So week one and day one is, is mental health and building in public. It's mindsets, it's shipping and taking yes. care of yourself. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I hope if nobody went and like built anything out of day one, we've at least like helped people have good entrepreneurial habits and mindsets that, that basically isn't, yeah, as toxic as that's is out there. Excellent. That's really at the heart of everything we're doing at Designer Up. And I love that that is a focal point, a foundational place that you're starting from with day one, because that is kind of the soil for everything that you're going to be doing. So that's amazing. And I, I heard that you mentioned before talking about how being broad is a likely way to fail when you're kind of exploring ideas. <laughs> and I talk a lot about that in the context of finding your niche as a designer. Um, it's like the paradox of specificity, right? The more specific your goal, the more opportunities you actually can create for yourself, like narrowing mm. your aperture actually expands your horizons. Mm-hmm. So many designers are very worried in the early stages that if they specialize or if they niche down their audience or their services, they're just going to be limiting their opportunities like to find work or to find users or to reach people. And it seems counterintuitive, but I know from startup wisdom, like if you don't define your MBA, if you don't define your target audience, mm-hmm. you're not, I mean, you're going to be speaking to everyone and thus no one, you know, and then also you're just you're not really going to have that energy and that momentum to pursue these ideas that take a lot out of you if you're not passionate about them. If you don't have some connection to them, you know, if it's not integrated into you and it's that kind of thing, like where, you know, design is really that extension of yourself. Everything that we do Mm. is an extension of ourselves, especially when you're taking something on as big as starting a business and, you know, massively affecting other people's lives through your designs, through your products. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't really think it's like a generalist versus a specialist debate, really. It's just kind of a matter of like starting someplace and seeing it through, gaining some traction around your ideas and and around that experience of going through the process and seeing it through that's so important. Yeah, you're right. It's not generalist versus specialist. And I think, I think about, I don't think about that a lot, but that's like prescient to me because I'm a generalist, right? And um, to be fair, day one as a, as a business, has lived through the struggle of like how, how you know, we, we are a lot of things to a lot of people, right? I talked about how diverse that early stage is, right? So I kind of speak to myself I um, when I when I give this advice and I know it's hard to take, right? I know exactly that fear of like, oh, we're gonna only serve one customer, right? But, um, but the idea of it not being about generalist versus specialist, because it's not about your input. It's not about the things you do along into the, into the thing. It's about how narrow that aperture is that you put all your stuff. And I don't know, probably find a metaphor about like water, you know, like, like if you actually, if you are a lot of, I mean, you could either be like a, a, a narrow hammer and you're super good at a thing, or you could be a generalist, but either way, if you focus it into the thing, it's, it is more powerful. So that's a very generic way to say it for all the reasons you just stated, right? If you aren't, whether it's being a designer, who's amazingly good at a thing, again, that's more about an input, but when you're entrepreneurial, it's about, it's, you know, it comes down to the customer and it comes down to the to the to the outcome you're trying to create the mission you stand for the 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 passion that you have um which again you can have passion for your input and that's fine a lot of people have that they love a craft right um but but yeah you won't find the people who also love what you're doing right here's where the principle comes into play here's where it's most most important or, or like where it starts to make sense eventually you can be a lot of things to a lot of people. Eventually you can create enough surface area that you can solve big problems in big ways and be a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually, right? When you're first starting out entrepreneurship, 
you have every disadvantage. You are nothing. You are no products. You have no brands. You are, you are going up. Even if you're going into like a green field, there's no competition. You're still nothing. No one knows what you are. Right. And so you have to, as you build your thing, as you build presence, products, brand, whatever it might be, continuing to narrow is the only way to find reactions, right? To be something that's enough for somebody, right? So they say like, find a hundred people that love you versus any, find one person that loves you and get their feedback, then find five and then 10 and a hundred. And, but again, it's super hard to say that. I'll tell you our first cohort was a pretty broad cohort, right? Um, Our second cohort is broad in in some ways, but it's also a more singular profile. Mm -hmm. And we're learning that over time. It's not necessarily the best way to do it, right? The better way to do it would be to find the thing and then let people come to you, right? Mm-hmm. It is slower, perhaps. It is a little bit of like, yeah, refine yourself. Disciplined entrepreneurs know that. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot of, pre- it's, I preach it. Sometimes I don't do it, but it's, 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 it's real wisdom. Um, and it absolutely, yeah, <laughs> it's tough. It's a tough one though, not gonna lie. And it reminds me of what Seth Godin says about tribes, you know, build your tribe. And um, even that, if that's a small one, that um, that kind of early adopter, that, that advocacy that you can build around an idea or a product is so important. And I think that that is a jumping off platform for you to, to expand more later. But focus, focus is so important. And, you know, that kind of brings me to the importance of story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for the work that we do as designers, it's so much about story. And it starts with the designers themselves, like first identifying what is their narrative? What are these things that they're telling themselves, the beliefs that they have, um, the limiting beliefs that they have a lot of times about their abilities and their worth in the industry and all of that stuff. And, and then mm-hmm. systematically through learning by doing, through experience, through action, reshaping those narratives into something that kind of really pushes them towards growth and towards their goals. Um, I don't think that always looks linear like they expect. And entrepreneurs know this more than anyone. Like you said, all of the ups and downs, it's probably too many to recount in a day. But um, I think when you understand your story, it becomes a lot easier for you to navigate those because you know what's true, you know what's true for you. And it's just more of a homing beacon to magnetize others that have a similar story or a narrative or who can get on board with yours. Yep. That's a, you know, for, for what you guys are doing over there. Yeah. I mean, I know. So, so it comes, so what you made me think of, because man, so many good thoughts in there. I think of, yeah, stories are so important for meaning, right. For our own meaning, for how we understand ourselves. That's like anthropological, but, um, the way the way the way we think about stories. Um, actually, I saw someone tweet this today. I forget who. I would love to attribute them. Um, but he basically said this idea of building in public, this little trend happening right now, is basically content marketing for founders. Meaning, when you are when you have nothing else, when you're a founder who's just got ideas, or even just like a founder who's like, I'm going to go build this. Like all you've done is put yourself in the arena. Mm-hmm. All you've got is your story. And to be fair, your story includes what you're interested in or what you're passionate about or what impact you want to have in the world. But you haven't affected any of that. You haven't built anything or hired anybody or whatnot. So your story is very unfull, but you have your own, you have your story up to date and you have your, where you're going, right? And you can see yourself through that narrative. Yeah. And um, and I, to be fair, I think all 
almost all entrepreneurs, you'll probably get into this like philosophically, have a version of that. If you don't, I don't know if you're an entrepreneur, right? If you don't have a story that says like, from where I'm coming from, through me, to an outcome that's different than it is today, I'm doing something, whether that's to just like make you richer or to sell a product or to make a big change in the world. And so, yeah, in some ways, all entrepreneurs have a story. And what we do is we try to get that out of you, right? Because that story is the first asset you have. And it's, you said, it's the first bat signal that you can put out that will get people around you. And again, I'm not the first, I'm not coining this term, but it's absolutely critical for founders to build their audience, build their community, build their first team members, whatever it might be, right? And, um, but it's a total mindset shift, right? There's a few people out there who are maybe like naturally self-promotional. They're the class clowns. They just, whatever, right? Like the extroverts, extroverts. Um, maybe that's more than that now in our world of Twitter and TikTok, but there's, you know, you don't have to be an introvert to not like feel comfortable doing that. Right. It's the majority of us. And, um, and it's not just going to be cringy self-promotional. It's to figure out how do you tell your stories, right? How do you tell them in a way that other people want to hear them that are aspirational? Um, yeah, I struggle with that too, right? I struggle with being focused. I struggle with oh, both yeah. what's our story and how to be telling it all the time. Um, but I'll tell you one thing that founders have going for them is as much as I tell founders to find a sustainable way to build is they feel like they've jumped off a cliff. So they feel like they are pretty much committed, committed. And then it's like, you'll do a lot when you're committed to something, right? You'll do a lot to sort of either see it stay alive or try to make the, the, the landing softer. And so and so entrepreneurship, because you've thrown your hat over the wall, you've got to go get it, right? So you, you start to tell your story. You start to know, man, if I'm going to get this sale, I got to go do a tech on charter or I got to go do a pitch competition or I got to do whatever, right? And so, and so it pulls it out of you in a really good way that puts you in your com- out of your comfort zone and you grow. That's another benefit to learn by doing right there. It pulls it out of you. That's, that's true. Yeah. We, uh, we actually, we're getting a bunch of fellows um, telling us sort of behind the scenes that like this week they're super scared to build in public, Yeah. but they know it's where they're, I mean, but I, I, I can hear it in their voices. We all know this is where they're going to grow. Right. So yeah, absolutely. it's really fun. So, you know, for everyone out there that kind of has these entrepreneurial dreams and goals, what advice do you kind of have for them if they really want to get something off the ground? And what are some kind of realistic expectations that they should have about this process of designing and building new products and, and getting? Yeah, them? no, designing businesses. I mean, that's that's the thing. So what I say, the first thing that I think most folks run into as they even like kind of contemplate that, that idea of like they're going to go build a business or be a, be an entrepreneur is they want to probably rightly so avoid picking the wrong thing, right? They want to try to make a good decision at the beginning. Yes. That's a, that's, that's a, fall, that's a fallacy, right? Um, as much as, as much as you should have an investor's mindset, like, yes, you're about to invest your time. The problem with sort of just doing your due diligence at the surface is all the, it's kind of like all the answers are outside of the building. All the answers yeah. are in the work, right? All the answers are two months down the road. So you might be staring at ideas A, B, and C, and you're like, man, I don't know which one I want to try. I will literally tell you, I don't care which one you try. Just go do one. The worst, the worst case scenario, and, and here's the thing, it's really just two to three months, right? It's really, it's not that, so just change some mind frame, mindsets. It's actually just a few months. It's not that long. You can quit it after two to three months, like just go find that next thing, right? Be, be, be iterative at a timescale that allows you to go deep enough. 
Yeah. Worst case scenario, if you have three ideas, you just spent nine months, but that's way better than just like dilly dallying up here, right? You you would, you would, you would go those same nine months and you wouldn't get anywhere. I've seen it way too often, right? Yeah. Um, life gets in the way. And so, so there is a commitment just like kind of, again, this is, I don't, this isn't in juxtaposition to everything I said of just like jump off the cliff. It's a little more like mentally go into a thing, right? Keep your day job, be sustainable, but go into it and say, this is my thing. Name it, call it a thing and work on it, right? So to be fair, that's why we've designed day one to be this time bound eight month program because we, there's a few other reasons to it, but we basically just want to push people hard, fast for a time period, you know, within all these other ways to stay sustainable. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. The other thing is um, to, to bring people around you, right? They'll, they'll be your other biggest, they'll be your biggest determinant of success. And so if you've got people you're contemplating with, build with them, also try it out, have some exit options, right? Yeah. Be super iterative with it, but do it and do it together. I love that. And I hope my students are listening because they go through this every time they're at the starting ideation phase of the course and they, they finally pick an idea and they're like, no, this isn't going to work. I talked to like two users, potential <laughs> users, and I just want to change my idea so bad. And every time they say that, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief because I know they're in the right place. I know that they're now starting to do the work. And, and I tell them, you know what? You know, they might worry for a number of reasons, like maybe this isn't going to be a great case study for their portfolio when they're going after UI UX jobs or whatever it is. And I always tell them, you know, having a grand success, having a grand failure, it's it's kind of the same. It's it will teach you so much. And that's the point of this program. Mm -hmm. And imagine the value that you can add to your case studies in your portfolio if you have a huge failure and you can explain why this product doesn't work why people don't want this, why, you know, this isn't a good idea. And no, it's so real. It's so real. The, 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 the best stories are where you actually get to the end of your self or your abilities, right? Very few people get to say, I pushed myself all the way and then, and kind of got beat. Yeah. Like, I don't know, for, for job interviews, for everything, those are the best stories. And like, I wish everyone had a little failure column. I mean, I got started by failing in Uganda for six months. Like I came home, we did not succeed. I didn't succeed. My friend succeeded later. Um, but I truly found the edge of myself and, and got to reflect and be like, huh, that's what it's like. And I'm still here. That's it. And that sort of set the foundation for things. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And I'm, you know, I think final question to kind of wrap things up is a personal question I like to ask my guest. And it is, what does balance look like to you? Ooh, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm my own version of like the typical entrepreneur who is kind of mono-focused. Um, but I have to have an answer. What is balance? Honestly, for me, balance is not frankly, frankly, not pushing myself past, honestly, not pushing myself too far in the sense that I love what I, what I do. So I just like, like to do it and I do it a lot. Right. But when I'm like done and I need a break, I kind of just do it. You know, I kind of give myself the permission to just like, in yeah. some ways work as long as I want and then stop working as long as I want. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, oftentimes I work a lot. My wife will tell you I work a lot. So it's not like, it's not about the like time on target. It's just about the permission to say like, yes, you're not saving lives. Like just 
I was, I read a tweet yesterday and someone was like, I used to work at the gap. And when things got crazy, we used to tell ourselves we sell socks and jeans. And I'm like, yeah, I sell information. <laughs> I sell virtual programs, like whatever. So, so yeah, just having permission to just like do a little bit of whatever you want is one, why the heck are you an entrepreneur if you don't have that? And if you don't have that along the way, I mean, yes, you're going to sacrifice now and maybe you'll have a nice payout later, but like you're in control. So set it up for yourself. You know, um, I, I accredit a little bit of that to one of our mentors, day one mentors, John Saddington, who kind of said it, I think he said it in some tweets and maybe in a chat we had of like, man, if you're an entrepreneur, why aren't you giving yourself agency to just do a little bit of what you want? And if you don't want to do what you're doing, why the heck are you doing it? <laughs> Is like kind of the decision. You get to make that, right? Just do what you want in a fun sort of way, in a way that does feel like work at times. But I don't know. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Don't take me the wrong way, but you know what I mean? I love it. And it, I think it ties in our whole talk and it's about that may be one of the most important mindsets of becoming an entrepreneur. It's giving yourself permission, permission to tell your story, to build and to fail, to go after your dreams and to remember why you're doing it in this in the first place, you know, to just be able to have that ability to do something, create something yourself and to chuck it in the bin if you don't want to do it. Yeah. And take a night off and have a glass of wine and yeah. just like watch reruns of friends or something like yeah. we all need it. So just go do it. That's why we do it. Right. I love it. This was an amazing talk. This was really fun. I knew it would be fun. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, excited to see this go live. Awesome. I, it was really enlightening and I'm grateful for your time. And I know that our designers listening to this are really going to gain a lot from the insights. So if you all are interested in learning more about day one and what's going on over there, check them out at joindayone.com. Thanks again, Andrew. Bye, Thanks, everyone. Elizabeth. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate or review it on your favorite podcast app so that others can find it too. And for more content, courses, and resources for designers, join us over at designerup.co. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time.